Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Nolan is standing by. Hey, Wacky Bruce! Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to another edition of the Bruce Exclusive. Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. Welcome back to the first time that we have gotten a chance to chat since the NFL trade deadline told on Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So we've got three things that we're going to try and talk about over the next two episodes of the Bruce exclusive, the trade deadline, the game that just happened against the new England Patriots and the game that is yet to happen against the Seattle Seahawks and all of the layers that go along with each one of those topics. Let's start with the trade deadline. The bills did not make any moves at the trade deadline. Okay, that's it. We're moving on. No, just kidding. Because as we talked about last week, there are two sections of criticism. If you think about it like a flowchart, we must first ascertain whether or not the team was able to do something. Could they have done something? And then we can criticize whether or not they should have done something. Because you can waste all your breath if you'd like criticizing whether or not they should have done something. But if you cannot properly prove whether or not they could have done something, you're pretty much just yelling at the clouds. So let's talk about that. There were two specific areas of need that Bill's Mafia at large were potentially hoping to see addressed at the trade deadline. The first one being one tech defensive tackle. Dalvin Tomlinson was a hot name out there, and we were hoping maybe GM Brandon Bean would be able to swing a trade for someone like that. Zero defensive tackles were traded at the deadline. Fun little story. I guess not really a story, more of a fact. Factoid, perhaps, because it's so small. Of the NFL players who decided to opt out of the 2020 season, defensive tackle star Latula for the Buffalo Bills being one of them, almost half of them were defensive tackles. 
That is a fun factoid. And because of that, there's a supply and a demand issue in the NFL right now. So I'm not shocked that none of them were able to be moved at the trade deadline. There's simply not a surplus of that position in the NFL to the point where teams feel comfortable getting rid of them. So not one of them was traded. So because not one of them was traded, I cannot, in good conscience, criticize Brandon Bean for a trade that I'm not entirely sure he could have made. Yes, I can yell into the ether and just say, do something. But we've already talked about that. Do what? Criticism has to have a plan. You have to have a specific thing that you are criticizing. And criticizing inaction is tricky because you have to be able to prove that action could have been taken. So let's move to a different position. One that I do feel like a reasonable criticism can be made. And that is cornerback. Now, you might be shocked. Bruce is talking about corners. I can't possibly imagine it. I've been pounding this drum for those of you who have been listening to this show for a long time. And for those of you who used to listen to the last show I was on before the Bruce exclusive was a thing. You guys know that I have been pounding the table for more cornerback depth on this team for a long time. I wasn't a fan of us going into last year with Kevin Johnson and Levi Wallace. It held up okay. This particular offseason, at 54, I was screaming, get Christian Fulton for the love of all that is holy and sacred, get Christian Fulton. And they didn't do it. If you couldn't give me that, then at least give me Jeremy Chin. And no. So, you might be shocked that I have decided to harp on the cornerback position. However, Desmond King got traded for a sixth-round pick. That's an upgrade from Taron Johnson, in my opinion. It's a fairly notable upgrade from Taron Johnson, in my opinion. And now that we know that a trade happened for a sixth round, you say, okay, well... They traded him to the Titans. The Titans and the Bills probably have at least close to the same draft pick. Would I, if I were the Buffalo Bills GM, would I have traded a sixth round pick for him? Yes. Would I have traded a fifth round pick for him? Yes. So I think there's a criticism that can be made there. If you're someone who believes that nickel corner upgrades for 2020 would have behooved this team in a big way, could have changed the way that offenses play against the Bills to the point where make it just a little bit harder to throw the ball against this Buffalo Bills team. And you think, well, I could have had it for a fifth or sixth round pick, a player who used to be an all-pro and has kind of fallen out of favor with the Chargers coaching staff. Then, yeah, I think there's a reasonable criticism to be had. I do. And I'm completely okay with that criticism. Because I'm making it. I think the Bills should have done that. I'm not going to lose my mind over it, but I think it would have been beneficial for the Bills to do. Now, because there are some pieces that move around, some other parts shake loose in the league. Players get cut because they get cut to make room for players who just got acquired. Players like Vic Beasley and Jonathan Joseph. I am not interested in either one of them. 
I wasn't overly interested in Vic Beasley before. My interest has gotten even less so since his time with the Titans. And Jonathan Joseph, at this point in his career, is not an effective player. But the trade deadline brings along with it some interesting discussions. Especially when you have them on social media between people who are upset at the team and people who are okay with the team. And it's really interesting because you have the word hater thrown around a lot. You have the word homer thrown around a lot. But it's interesting to note that hater and homer isn't really decided by what you say. And it's really not decided by how you act overall or any sort of real sample size when it comes to your opinions, because nobody wants to collect your sample size in order to have a holistic view on a person before labeling them as such. Instead, you get labeled off one tweet or one post or one comment or potentially one podcast. And really what it boils down to is hater versus Homer is determined by the mob. The mob determines if you are a hater or a Homer. What the mob wants is what the mob wants. And if you are counter to what the mob wants, you will be branded as such a hater or a Homer. I've told this story before after the Dallas Thanksgiving day game. Last year, I think it was the next day, I made a tweet about, hey, you know, Cody Ford didn't really play that well. And I got lit up. How dare you, Bruce, interject this negativity after such a huge win. The mob has determined that you are not allowed to say anything negative. And when the mob is upset that Brandon Bean didn't make a trade, the mob has now determined that you can't inject any sort of reasonable nuance into this discussion. You can't say things like I say on this podcast. You can't say things like, okay, well, are we entirely sure that he even could have made a move? I don't care. Do or do not, there is no try. Let's put a Yoda gif in there. Well, that that's, that's not a fair judgment. They don't care about being fair. That's why they're the mob. So if anybody out there is struggling or suffering through any of that stuff, they're annoyed at getting branded. I want to offer you a piece of encouragement that you are probably not a hater and you're probably not a homer. You are being branded as such because the mob has determined that you are such. And really, the amount of positivity you have about things like the trade deadline is based primarily on your predisposition. Predispositions determine positivities. So if you are predisposed to the fact that Brandon Bean is a bad GM and this team will never succeed with him as the GM, then I'm pretty confident you are going to view this scenario in the same light. If you are predisposed that every single thing that Brandon Bean has ever done and the Buffalo Bills have ever done is great, then you're probably going to be predisposed toward a great amount of positivity. But whether you have a lot of it or none of it is usually not based on the event itself. 
It's based on the predisposition. So as we examine ourselves at moments like the trade deadline, it is imperative that we look inside and say, what is my predisposition and is it affecting me now? Is it drawing me into an overtly positive or unrealistically negative place that it shouldn't be dragging me into? Am I being polluted by my predisposition towards certain levels of positivity? You love the alliteration, don't you? I love the alliteration. I am preaching about the pollution of predisposition that determines positivity. And in the process, I am checking my Mike's pop filter. The Bills did do certain things at the trade deadline, though. They weren't related to trades. They ended up signing Darren Lee, which we had previously discussed on this podcast and will not go back into again. But they also signed previous Carolina Panther cornerback Daryl Worley. Daryl Worley did not play well in Dallas in 2020 prior to his release. His best season came under, you guessed it, Sean McDermott in Carolina. And this brings up a really interesting talking point. Let's talk about Sean McDermott, Brandon Bean, and ex-Carolina Panthers. I know it's a running joke, and I know it's funny that when the previous Carolina Panther becomes available, the discussion is, well, how long before he's a member of the Buffalo Bills? In fact, when the Carolina Panthers would draft someone in the NFL draft, the immediate joke would be, I very much look forward to this player being a Buffalo Bill in four years. So it's a significant enough trend that there are jokes about it. But let's talk about whether or not it's actually healthy. We talked about predisposition just a few minutes ago. What about predisposition to Panthers? That's right. More alliterative awesomeness from Bruce today. The Panther predisposition is clearly within Brandon Bean. Mario Addison, Starla Tule, Mike Tolbert, Josh Norman, Daryl Worley, A.J. Klein. The Panther predisposition is real. Daryl Williams. It's all over the place. Dean Marlowe. The question is why and is it a positive or a negative for the team? And I'm going to share this. If you have all factors being equal in a decision between two players, then familiarity is a good thing. If you have two players, player A and player B, for one spot, and one of them is familiar with your coaching staff, your systems, your schemes, the way that you do things, that can be a very reasonable tiebreaker. I understand that. In addition... When you are trying to churn bottom of the roster players, familiarity is good because it helps them get up to speed faster. It helps people be able to contribute more quickly. There was a discussion as to whether or not Darren Lee would be able to be on the field this weekend for the Buffalo Bills. The answer is very, very, very unlikely. Highly unlikely. He might not even see the field at all this year. But if he does, it's a very, 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 very small chance that he'd be able to be on the field 
this weekend because he lacks the familiarity. So familiarity has a benefit. And when you are looking for comfort, I can understand why you might want to have people who are already familiar with you and your coaches and your systems and your schemes. I get that. The issue comes when you're passing up more talent for familiarity. Well, I can't really think of a scenario where Brandon Bean has done that. So I'll give you a great example. When the Bills signed Mario Addison this offseason, was there a pass rusher on the market that you could have gotten for a similar sized contract to Mario Addison who would have been more productive that was passed over because of the familiarity? If the answer to that question is yes, then familiarity is now being used as a crutch and that's a bad thing. If the answer is no, then I see no problem with it. So familiarity just can't be used as a blanket overall because as a blanket overall, it's not a negative inherent trait. Wanting to have people you're familiar with is not intrinsically a bad thing. It's only a bad thing if that desire causes you to make mistakes that you wouldn't otherwise make because you are sacrificing talent and you're sacrificing things that are more important to be able to get the familiarity. Let's take everyone's favorite target right now, A.J. Klein. A.J. Klein, three years, $18 million dollars. Was the familiarity a bad thing? Did it cause Brandon Bean to make a bad decision? Here were the free agent linebackers that were available. Shaq Barrett, nope, franchised. Yannick Ngakwe was a defensive end slash outside linebacker, franchise. Kyle Van Noy, outside linebacker, New England Patriots. He signed a four-year, $51 million contract. Not even the same ballpark as the contract that A.J. Klein signed. Well, Bruce, what about Devon Kennard? Uh, I don't think that's really the same kind of player. Jordan Jenkins, not the same kind of player. Vic Beasley, one year, $9.5 million, and now he's cut. Now we talk about him as maybe one of the worst signings in recent memory to free agency. Kyle Fackrell, maybe. One year, $4.6 million, not playing well for the Giants. Leonard Floyd, again, more of a pass rusher. Devondre Campbell, he's not really a good coverage linebacker. Aaron Lynch, Terrell Suggs. Clay Matthews is still unsigned. Michael Kendricks, who just got cut from a practice squad. I can't see a scenario right now where the Bills' familiarity with A.J. Klein caused them to pick that when they shouldn't have picked him and should have picked someone else. Now we can have a separate discussion as to whether they should have signed him at all. If you will recall, I was not a big fan of the AJ Klein signing. I'm still not a big fan of the AJ Klein signing. I said it was an overpayment for someone I thought was a very, very low bottom of the roster, kind of a special team sort of dude. So whether or not they should have signed him Versus not signing anybody at all, that's one question. Whether or not the familiarity caused them to pass up on other talent is a separate issue entirely. And that's what you have to take into consideration 
when determining if the familiarity is by itself harmful. I would make an argument that the Josh Norman signing is one of the signings where familiarity potentially hurt the Bills. Because there were other free agent cornerbacks who were signed for less, including Kevin Johnson, who played perfectly reasonably in Buffalo last year, that I think are superior players to Josh Norman. Brian Poole is a slot corner, but he decided to re-sign with the Jets for one year, $5 million. The Bills would have offered him the six that they offered Josh Norman. They probably could have gotten him. Prince of Mukamara is a better player than Josh Norman. There are players out there that could have been signed. Logan Ryan signed with the Giants for one year, $7.5 million, which is only slightly more than the Bills signed Josh Norman for. I understand he's a slot corner. Again, he's a slot corner. I get it. But cornerback depth potentially could have been had more cost efficiently, but familiarity was used instead. I'm okay with the criticism, but again, individual decisions deserve to be criticized individually. These gigantic, broad, sweeping brushstrokes that come along with our views on things are very, very often flawed. Individual decisions deserve to be handled individually. It uses the globalized statements that counselors will tell you never to use in your marriage because they're escalator words. I'll give you a great example. There is a big difference between, honey, I thought you said you were going to empty the dishwasher. And how come you never, ever empty the dishwasher? Those are not the same statements. One of them went global with the language. One of them remained situational with the language and as such can be tackled more easily. So if you think that Brandon Bean is someone who always or never does things, you're probably not right. That's one of the tip-offs when you're reading a multiple choice question or a true-false question to know that that's probably not the answer is when you see things like always and never because even people who write tests know that those things are extreme and that oftentimes the truth lies somewhere in the middle but that would require a level of nuance thinking that we don't like because we just want to yell. So, are there occasions where potentially... Brandon Bean's desire for familiarity has caused him to make a decision that wouldn't have been as good as the decision he would have made if he would have taken familiarity out of the equation. Yes, I'm sure there probably are. I feel very confident. And when those decisions happen, we should evaluate those decisions and be critical of them when they occur. But broad sweeping brushstrokes always does this, never does this. That's not the way that's going to be helpful in our thinking because then we're going to swing all the way left and swing all the way right and the emotional roller coaster is going to get us all sick. Sometimes comfort is good. And when that happens, great. If I have a bottom of the roster player and I want to try and upgrade the bottom of the roster and I have two players who are close 
in skill level and one of them's familiar with the scheme and the other one's not, that's a great tiebreaker. Bring them in. You should. We'll be able to know quicker whether or not this person can offer this team any value because we don't have to go through, well, we can't really judge the person because they just got here and they don't know the system yet. We don't have to judge that. We can get to the answer quickly. We can fail or succeed at that position slot faster or slower based on whether or not the team brings in someone who has familiarity or doesn't. And in that case, it's a good thing. But sometimes we have to make sure it's not weighted too much. And when decisions like that occur, we should be critical of them. We are going to take a quick break. We are going to come back. We are going to talk about the Patriots win and why I referred to it on social media as guilty pleasure, empty calories. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive of Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. We have been through the trade deadline. We have gone through Hater versus Homer. We have alliteratively decided that the predisposition determines the positivity. We have been through X-Panthers. X-Panther. 60% of the time, it works every time. Shout out to Brother Bill on Twitter for a fun little video that he did with the movie Anchorman and that particular funny joke. So, the Patriots and the Bills play this past Sunday. And the Bills got a win. And I referred to it on Twitter as guilty pleasure empty calories. And some people were not happy with that. But let me read you specifically what it is that I said. I said, this win is guilty pleasure, empty calories. It doesn't make me feel any better about future games on the Bills schedule. And it doesn't make me feel better about Josh Allen. It just feels good in this moment to beat the Pats. Some people took that really negatively. And I'm not entirely sure why. This was a win that felt good in the moment, but doesn't necessarily give me any long-term sustenance regarding this team. That's what empty calories mean. They're calories, and they provide you the necessary sustenance to continue to function. They probably taste pretty good, too. But that doesn't necessarily mean they provide long-term sustenance. What do I mean by long-term sustenance? You have heard me say on this podcast before, that how and why you win are better predictors of future wins than the fact that you won. I really can't tell you anything different about the Seahawks game than I could before the Patriots game. I really can't tell you anything different about the Cardinals game coming up than I could before the Patriots game. I really can't tell you anything different about the Steelers game coming up than I could before the New England Patriots game. I didn't learn anything new about this team. I didn't learn anything new about Josh Allen. The team won. That's cool. They ran the ball well. They should have run the ball well. The New England Patriots rolled out six and seven defensive backs on almost every single snap. If the team wasn't able to run the ball well, 
That would have been a new piece of information. Not an encouraging piece of information, but a new one. The run game and the run blocking of this team are so woefully bad that they can't run against a team who has six and seven defensive backs on the field at almost all times. That would have been new information. But I didn't really acquire any sort of new information about this team. And that's what I mean when I say empty calories. I didn't learn anything about Josh Allen. didn't move the needle positively for me. He only threw 18 passes. The impact of Josh Allen on this game was not overly significant. It was a very, very even game. Well, Bruce, the Patriots were beat up. We should have smashed them. Well, the Bills were really beat up too. Well, the Patriots were more beat up. Okay, debatable, sure. They still have one of the greatest coaches and defensive game planners in the history of football, a great offensive line and a good running game, and the weather was lousy. I'm happy to get a win. I'm not one of those guys who is ever going to tell you a win is a win. I don't care how we got it. You're never going to hear me say, well, a win's a win. In the playoffs, maybe that's true. Survive in advance because it doesn't matter. You, There's no points for style points. Well, there's no points for style points in the regular season either, Bruce. You're right. But you can't keep going in the regular season and keep lucking out. Your luck will fail. If you luck your way into a Super Bowl, hey, you know what? That trophy's still good. But you're never going to hear me say in the regular season, well, a win's a win. Don't care. Because I already told you a million times that how and why you win the game are more indicative and predictive of future games than the fact that you won it by itself. So if I then come back and say a win's a win, that makes me pretty much a hypocrite. And I'm not going to do that. However, I'm happy to get the win. I'm happy to win the game that the Bills should have won. It doesn't really move the needle for me on this team but it's good to get a win. And that's what empty calories really mean. Because this was really a very even game. Both run games did well. Both defenses struggled at times. Both quarterbacks turned the ball over once and took potential points off the board. Now, the different question is, should it have been an even game? Well, Bruce, you know, I don't even want to hear any negativity. It's a week-to-week league. It is a week-to-week league. What do we mean when we say it's a week-to-week league? Do we mean that every single game is 50-50, just a toss-up? Because that's the way sometimes that phrase is used. It's a week-to-week league. You know, do what you got to do. Hey, Bruce, the Titans lost to the Bengals. It's a week-to-week league. Well, yeah, it's a week-to-week league, but that's not what that means. It doesn't mean that, hey, any week, anything can happen. Well, yeah. Any week, anything can happen. But there are still probabilities at play. There are always probabilities at play. It's not always 50-50. Good teams play bad games. Bad teams play good games. There are upsets and choke jobs that defy probability all the time. But in the end, probabilities are probabilities for a reason. It's because they come out on top More than 50% of the time. That's what makes them a probability. In this case, a majority probability. Games aren't 50-50. Yes, it's a week-to-week league. 
Games are not 50-50. So should the Bills have beaten the Patriots by more than that? That's the number one question. It's the $10 million question. Should the Bills have beaten the Patriots? The most common point differential in the league is three points. Go listen to Joe Marino, Locked on Bills podcast from the Draft Network. Go listen to his podcast from earlier this week. It would have been the Tuesday episode where he talks about margins of victory and how half of games are decided by one score or less. I'm going to read you the Seahawks games from thus far this year. Seahawks beat the Falcons 38-25. to Seven-point victory over a not-good team who fired their head coach. The Seahawks beat the Patriots by five points, two more points than the Bills beat the Patriots by. The Seahawks beat the Cowboys 38-31. to This one's a weird outlier because Dak Prescott was still playing for the Cowboys at that time, so it was a shootout. The Seahawks beat the Dolphins by eight points. Again, one score. The Seahawks beat the Vikings, who are really struggling, by one point. The Seahawks lost to the Cardinals... By three points, the Seahawks beat the Niners by 10 points. The Seahawks have an MVP candidate at quarterback and the number one scoring offense in the league. And every single one of their games was decided by one score or less, except for the 49ers, which was determined by 10 points. Every single one. So the team who has the highest scoring offense in the league is not consistently blowing out people. So expecting the Bills to consistently blow out people is kind of weird. Well, Bruce, you just said qualitatively how and why you win. Yes, qualitatively how and why you win. By what method did you win? I'm going to give you a great example of what I mean. The Miami Dolphins just beat the LA Rams. And if you watched that game... That was one of the weirdest games I have ever seen in my entire life. The Miami Dolphins won 28-17, special teams touchdowns, defensive touchdowns. They only had 145 total yards, 90 passing yards, and won by 11. That, my friends, is not a sustainable method of victory. That's what I mean. When I say how and why you win are more predictive of future victories than the fact that you won. That Miami Dolphins victory tells me nothing about whether or not the Dolphins could beat the Rams nine times out of ten. Or whether or not the Dolphins have a shot at the AFC East title. I didn't learn anything from that game. That's such a fluky game based on things that are unsustainable that I can't look at that as a Dolphins fan and go, yep, yep, feel good about the future based on the past. That's what I mean when I say qualitatively. And qualitatively, what I see about this Bills-Patriots game is that the game plan was pretty clear. 18 pass attempts that came out of Josh Allen's fingers. Now, more pass attempts were called. Occasionally, he would check to something else or he would run with it. Well, Bruce, listen, I understand that the Patriots had six and seven defensive backs on the field the majority of the time, but we need to be able to dictate to the defense 
the Chiefs didn't dictate to the Buffalo Bills defense. They ran the ball a bajillion times. Well, you know, good quarterbacks are still able to do Patrick Mahomes didn't even throw that much against the Buffalo Bills. Markedly below season average in passing yards and passing attempts and passing completions. So Patrick Mahomes, former league MVP, Super Bowl MVP, Andy Reid, one of the best coaches in football and a great offensive play caller. They didn't dictate to the defense. They took what the defense gave them. Well, Bruce, you got to be able to succeed even when people are doing that. I understand that. But this is still new to Josh Allen. Josh Allen hasn't been defended this way. I've been talking about this for two games now. It took Josh Allen the entirety of last year all the way to the beginning of this year to get right the, hey, what happens when you play man and single high and cover zero against the Bills? So it took him the majority of last year all the way to acquiring Stephon Diggs in the offseason and then coming out gangbusters the first couple of games this year It took him that long to figure out how to deal with this. And now you want him to take the next step and figure out immediately how to handle this zone stuff in just a couple games. Listen, I've never been called a Josh Allen apologist. In fact, most people call me a Josh Allen hater. But I'm willing to give the kid a couple games to figure it out. If he's still struggling with this same stuff at the end of this year then okay, we'll talk about it in the offseason. But this idea that I don't care if they keep rolling out six and seven defensive backs, you got to throw. Why? Why do you have to throw? The Bills were averaging six yards a carry. Do you know one of the reasons why rushing is less efficient than passing? Because you don't always average six yards a carry. But when you're averaging six plus yards a carry, it becomes very efficient. And there's nothing all that wrong with it at that point. Yes, they're going to have to call shot plays with specific zone beaters at specific times, and Josh is going to have to hit them. But if a team is going to continually roll out six and seven defensive backs against the Buffalo Bills, they better darn well be able to run the ball. And they did. Well, Bruce, they should throw more screens. Coming into the Patriots game, Josh Allen was tied for the league lead in amount of screen passes thrown. More screen passes than anybody else in the entire league. So don't tell me that Brian Dable's not doing anything to help Josh Allen. Running on first down was a common theme based on the looks they were getting when historically the Bills have passed on first down quite a bit this year. Why the change? Because that's what the defense was doing. They were forcing the Bills to stay patient, check to runs. Good teams win games all sorts of ways. Were the Kansas City Chiefs less of a team because they beat the Bills in the fashion that they did? No, they did what they had to do to win. And the Bills did what they had to do to win on this particular case. I'm fine with the offensive game plan. Completely fine with the offensive game plan. Now, Josh Allen didn't have a significant impact on the game because he only threw the ball 18 times. And I said that Josh Allen had a meh game. P. 
People were very upset when I said that. But I said specifically that he bailed from clean pockets. He ran out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage. Let's get some timestamps for you. Second and four, 848 left in the second quarter. That's when he runs out of bounds behind the line of scrimmage. We were in second and four. We went to third and long. Stalled the drive out. That's a bad play. First and 10, 344 left in the second. Bailed from a clean pocket. Could have had John Brown for about a gain of 20 on a crosser. But a blitz came. He rolled away from it, even though Zach Moss had that player. If he would have hung tight in the pocket, he wouldn't have cut off the field and been able to hit that throw. That's a play where Josh Allen should have had a little bit better pocket manipulation. There was seven on six, so he probably tried to roll because there was seven on six. But the fact of the matter is the seventh blitzer got caught up in the middle. Allen had time to chill in the pocket and make a good throw down the field. He had already gotten hit a couple times, and perhaps it made him a little skittish. First and 10, 8.36 left in the fourth quarter. This is a great play by John Feliciano, by the way. John Feliciano comes from center all the way over to the right side of the formation to cut off and steer around into orbit. A blitzer takes him off of his feet. Josh Allen rolls to his right a little bit, and a better ball to Tyler Croft gets yak yardage there. But he puts the ball in the dirt. Tyler Croft was able to get it, kind of crawl his way on the army ground to the first down. Not a great play from Josh Allen. A great play from John Feliciano. Third and five, 438 left in the fourth quarter. Bailed from a clean pocket. Overreacted to pop pressure. And instead of sliding up in the pocket, he cut off half the field and made it so his only real play was to Gabriel Davis, who then dropped it. So he ended up making a great play, Josh Allen did, to make that throw But there could have been other plays available had he not bailed from a pocket. And then Gabriel Davis exacerbated the issue by dropping it. So it was like bad, good, bad. (laughs) It was a a good sandwich on bad bread. That's what that play was. Well, Bruce, you're just being nitpicky. You're picking out four plays. Again, he only had 18 throws. So if those are four that I have mentioned out of 18 throws, it's not a great ratio. So it was a meh game for me. I do not think, after further review, that the interception was Josh Allen's fault. I really don't. Based on the body language of Stephon Diggs, based on the rhythm that Josh Allen was throwing it in, I don't think it was a bad throw by Josh Allen. I think Stephon Diggs was in the wrong spot. So I'm not going to discredit him for that interception because that would be unfair because the probable evidence indicates it was very likely a miscommunication. I went back to, I watched it a bunch of times, That's what it looks like to me. So I'm not going to harp on him for that. In case you were wondering where that was. It wouldn't be fair. It's not fair to criticize Josh Allen for something that appears probable is not his fault. In addition, I'm really glad he was able to use his legs and pick up some valuable first downs. In addition, there were great checks at the line of scrimmage. Josh Allen's a smart quarterback, ladies and gentlemen. He's a smart quarterback. Josh Allen did not implode versus the Patriots the way he has in the past and throw some horrible duck up into triple coverage and get it picked. 
We did not see Hero Ball Josh. So that's the positive side of this. Was it a meh game overall from him? Yes, I do believe it was. It was a meh game. I had good. I had bad. There were two sides to the coin, just like there usually is. They were eh for me. It didn't move the needle overall for me. I didn't walk away feeling that I was closer to being Josh Allen is the guy. And I didn't walk away feeling I was closer to being like Josh Allen's not the guy. I just feel like I didn't really learn a lot about Josh Allen in that space. But we continue to learn more about AJ Klein. Folks, I understand that you're frustrated with AJ Klein. I'm frustrated with AJ Klein too. We've talked about it. I was not a fan. What we need to do is we need to have a discussion about the phrase, nobody could be worse than AJ Klein. You guys know by now, hyperbole, not really my thing. I'm a little bit too literal of a person for that. But right now, with Dodson not being available and with Darren Lee just now getting to the team, you might be stuck with him for a little bit. In fact, you're probably stuck with him until the end of 2021 based on the contract. If you cut him next year, you get $6 million in saving, but a $4 million dead cap. If they need that $2 million, maybe. But we're probably stuck with him for a little bit. I'm not happy about it. But you have to have a plan. You can't just say, well, bench this guy. Okay, well, is the next guy better? We couldn't possibly be worse. Yes, actually, he could. He could actually be worse. AJ Klein's not the worst linebacker in the history of mankind. He's just been ineffective for the Bills. I was not an overall fan before we signed him. But... Unfortunately, we're probably stuck with him. Ike Butker and Ryan Bates. That was a discussion that was had during the game because Ryan Bates came in at center when Mitch Morse left with a concussion to go into the protocol. And the Bills ran the ball right down the throats. And then next time up, John Feliciano was the center and Ike Butker was the left guard. Ike Butker was really, really bad against the New York Jets. He was better, like a good bit better. I went back and watched all of his snaps and I watched all of Ryan Bates' snaps. Ike Bucker was a good bit better than he was against the Jets, specifically in the run game. And I get it. If you like John Feliciano's smarts, then you're going to want him at center helping Josh call protections and doing the things mentally that the center does instead of having Bates there and potentially running the risk of getting some of those things wrong. I get it. I am Ryan Bates Hive, by all means. When I say that, I say it jokingly. I think Ryan Bates is a reasonable player, a reasonable, rosterable player in the NFL. And Butker had not played well against the Jets, but he did play markedly better against the New England Patriots. So it's time for the plurality pie, a delicious slice of plurality pie. And as you will recall, the plurality pie is me giving out slices that are sized appropriately for the impact that a particular player or coach had on the victory or loss that recently occurred. In this case, it's victory plurality pie and 17% of it goes to Devin Singletary. In addition, 17% of it goes to Zach Moss. 
I was glad to see the two of them breaking tackles, finding holes, being effective against light boxes that the New England Patriots were giving them. John Feliciano also gets 17%. That edge that he brings is important. I mentioned the great play where he came from his center position, came all the way over to the right side of the screen, of the formation, and cut off an edge blitzer. Extremely valuable. Quentin Nelson did that, and it was all over the internet last year. John Feliciano did it. It's still impressive. Dean Marlowe and Justin Zimmer each get 8%. Dean Marlowe for the run stops. Justin Zimmer for the play of the game. I remain convinced that if Justin Zimmer does not punch that ball out, the Buffalo Bills lose this game. They were reeling. The Patriots were moving the ball at will against the Buffalo Bills. And sometimes you need a play. And it was a huge one. Josh Allen gets 6%. Again, didn't really have a significant impact on the game. Check the ball when necessary. Didn't do anything crazy. This is a great example of why wins are not a quarterback stat. There's lots of players on this team who had more of an impact on the victory than Josh Allen did. 6%. Tyler Matikiewicz gets 6% for a very, very heads-up recovery of an attempted surprise onside kick from the New England Patriots. That's why he's a special teams maven. Good for you, Tyler Matikiewicz. Side note, the fact that Bill Belichick was willing to do that means he was trying to steal possessions. Again, the Belichick against Josh Allen was in the same vein, not the same thing, but in the same vein as the game plan for the Bills against the Kansas City Chiefs. Other, 21%. So again, to recap, Devin Singletary, 17%. Zach Moss, 17%. John Feliciano, 17%. Dean Marlowe, 8%. Justin Zimmer, 8%. Josh Allen, 6%. Tyler Matikiewicz, 6%. Other, 21%. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the delicious plurality pie. That is everything for today, folks. We managed to get through, somehow, what I wanted to talk about. And until tomorrow, I bid you adieu saying, that's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan, Buffalo Rumble.